Well, one of the events that uh, Major League Baseball has put together that's really, really taken off in the early stages is the annual Field of Dreams game. This year it'll be between the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago Cubs. And if you've had a chance, check out the uniforms online. They are, I mean, I'm a sucker for throwback uniforms anyhow. Baseball throwback uniforms. These are, these are pretty remarkable. Um, tonight, the MLB Network at 7 o'clock will be showing the MILB Field of Dreams telecast. It will be a game between the Cedar Rapids Colonels and the Quad Cities River Bandits. And again, it will exclusively be on the MLB Network starting at 7 p.m. And our next guest, Dan O'Dowd, will be part of the MLB Network's coverage. And we're very pleased that uh, he joins us on Blair and Barker. Dan, as always, we appreciate your time. Uh, we personally, I mean, I really look forward to the field of dreams. I, I just think the whole the whole concept is um, it's just it. The whole concept, there's a balance between schmaltz which I like every now and then. I like the schmaltzy aspect of it and just the just the uniqueness of it and, and the uniqueness of the setting. So we know it's a busy time. We, we thank you for joining us. Um, so I wanted to ask you this. Now, the uh, San Diego Padres made a pretty significant deal at the trade deadline, and then they lost three games to the Dodgers, and then they lost to the Giants. I'm not saying that there's ever a case... <laughs> I'm not or one game to the Giants. I'm sorry. I'm not saying that AJ Preller's sitting there with a case of buyer's remorse, but you've been in that position, Dan. When you make a big deal, it, there is it's human nature, right? Where you're kind of sitting there tapping your, you know, tapping your pen or tapping your fingers and going, "Yeah, okay, this is uh, let's let's just win one. Let's 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 win one and then let's win two. <laughs> if you ever beat it, first of all, guys, thanks for having me on. I love coming on with with the both of you. If there's ever a, a prime example of how humbling the game is, it's what you just talked about. They make they trade for one of the most unique players ever traded in the history of the game, and uh, you know they add other pieces around them. So you look at their offense on paper and you go, "Oh my God, this club's going to score some runs," and they literally, since the deal, haven't scored any runs at all. <laughs> so it's just the complete baffling, unpredictable nature and humbling part of the game of baseball. You know, the problem with trades um, and the trading deadline is that, you know, this type of team with this type of talent over 162-game season, I mean, your talent always, you know, shows. But when you make a trade and your season now is condensed, and so I think, you know, we're into the mid-50s now mm -hmm. um, with the number of games left in the season, it, it really changes the paradox on how you look at these things because ultimately the players that you acquire really have to hit the ground and perform well right away for you to get any residual value of it in the short term. And that's what makes the evaluation of trades uh, so unique um, and from really any other sport because our trade deadline is so late in, late in every season. Dan, is clubhouse chemistry a worry for a GM at the trade deadline? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think for GMs that get it, it is. Um, I, I think honestly, some some people don't get that part of it. I, you know, it's a hard thing to uh, where chemistry is not talked about in our industry because it, you, there's no algorithm uh, to quantify it. But let me tell you, when you when you have it, you know it, and when you don't, you know it. 
And it's a fine line. And, uh, you know, you look at some of the teams like the Brewers, for an example. Um, what they did was really, really unique to me. What the Yankees did was unique to me because it's that fine chemistry that exists. It's not to say that the guys that you're bringing back aren't good guys either, but it takes a, a while for a team to gel and, you know, the unique mix of personalities and how they all fit together into one puzzle. And if it's working, like the Blue Jays went into the trading deadline and they were rolling. And so, you know, however Josh Hader fit into that or didn't fit into it, I mean, I don't know, but I know that uh, it, they were a team that was playing as a unit. And for me, the Brewers have always been, you know, like some of their parts has been better, they're greater than their individual parts. And so to make that team, you know, make that trade, that's a real danger for me. That's a, that's like a warning flag because, again, you just you just don't know how to affect that fine human analytical part of our game. You went through so many trade deadlines. When you were with good teams, would you rather have done too much or just enough? Just enough. Yeah. Yeah, just enough to send a message to your clubhouse that, you know, we believe in you, but not enough to upset what I just talked about. Dan, when you look at the Baltimore Orioles, who, you know, they're they're our focus right now with the Jays playing three games against them. They've got... 14 games left against the Orioles. If, if, if you were Mike Elias, and, and I'm going to move past the trade deadline here because we all know what Baltimore did at the trade deadline, but what, what do you want to see from your team going forward to tell you that this isn't a mirage? You know, To tell you, for example, that Brandon Hyde is the right guy to take this team to the next level, that Felix Bautista is the guy who can close. Like, Obviously, a playoff spot, I imagine, would cement a lot of that. But what do you think Mike Elias wants to see out of this out of this group? And in your mind, how how close are they to being able to put together a couple of good years in you know a really competitive division? You know, um, you never know how close you are to being a good team when you go through a rebuild. You just kind of hold on until you you know get over the hump. I always felt like you know you begin to see when players start playing, you know, like right now they're playing really well because there's no expectation on them at all. And so, you know, I look at those, that team and the Guardians, those two teams are playing with house money. You know, they're both young, talented teams. And uh, they show up every day now believing they can win. But if they don't win, it's like, okay, well, there was no expectation for us to win anyway. There's a lot, it's a lot easier to play the game. That mindset, it blows me away that you can't maintain that mindset even when you become good. But I think the Blue Jays, for me, are an example of a team this year for the first time playing with a high level of expectation. It's just different. And so uh, I, I think both collectively as a team and individually as a player, I think we'll know when they get hit in the face again. And they will. Like uh, Batista will blow a couple saves in a row. I think the concern for Mike would be not their young position player group because they've got – I mean, with the trades they made, they got more guys. Gunnar Henderson's getting close. Westbrook's getting close. The outfielder Stowers getting close. Or Stowers getting close. So they just had players that they needed to create opportunities for. But it's that starting pitching for me that really has over-exceeded expectations. We'll have to see this winner, you know, if they augment that rotation with some more legitimate big league guys to make sure they build in regression. Because that's the group for me that has surprised me. 
and how well they've pitched. And we'll have to see how well they pitch once the league realizes the Orioles are now a team to be reckoned with. And so it's going to be, I don't think we'll see it between now and the end of the year, but we'll certainly see how Brandon navigates those waters when the expectations for next season become greater. Dan, when you see a team fire a manager midseason, what, what do you need to see from the new manager that tells you that that manager is the right guy for the right spot? Well, I think the only, for me, I mean, I let Clint Hurdle go, which was, oh, my, geez, it was just an incredibly emotionally tough decision for us as an organization. Uh, for me personally, I regret it to this day, honestly, for a lot of reasons. But I think that the only way you let a manager go is you feel like in some way, shape, or form he's lost the clubhouse. The thing with Charlie is really, I mean, nothing surprises me anymore in our game. Um, but I really don't know if that dynamic took place or not. But for me, you know, that is the only reason you let go of a manager. And you don't let him go because of his in-game decisions or his use of personnel because that's all subjective based upon context, where you're at in the course of the season, what kind of roster you're dealing with with health at that point in time. So it's the manager's ability that comes in to capture the heartbeat of his club and get the players playing for something bigger than themselves will tell you if you've had the right guy. Dan, uh, the Jays are in a situation right now where you know, they, they're they they really don't have much of a choice with you say Kikuchi. I mean, John Schneider's talked about you know, we're going to continue sending him out. He's grinding. It's clearly a signing that so far has not worked out for the organization. Um, as a general manager, we we know that everything is collaborative these days, right? We know that every a, a lot of a lot of the major decisions are collaborative, whether it's lineup. Uh, whatever some games are scripted all 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 of that stuff is there a temptation as a general manager to take a more direct role in what is done to a player when it's a guy you've committed contractually to you know in other words it's your signing right you you were the guy that gave him three years and 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 36 million and uh you know your fingerprints are all over this is, is there a temptation to really want to step up for that guy and, and maybe, you know, maybe argue his case a little bit, maybe pound the table a bit for him in meetings? I think when you're young, you know, I think when you're young in your job, you spend way too much time debating why you were right and somebody else was wrong. Um, I think so many years I waste, I listened to discussions in rooms where it was more about people validating their opinion on players rather than collectively recognizing, you know, what you're dealing with. I always felt, as I matured a little bit, which, by the way, took a long time, um, that uh, you never wanted to double down on a bad decision. And I think you double down on a bad decision trying to validate that decision. And then it makes it doubly worse. And so I think it is what it is. And I think the quicker you come to the conclusion of that, the healthier your organization becomes because you show the ability to show the type of humility from a leadership standpoint to say, you know what, this one's on me, and this has not worked out the way as intended to be when you're a GM. You're never going to hit a 1,000. You're going to make some mistakes. You hope there are mistakes that just don't cripple your organization. But every person who's had that job has made probably more mistakes than they've had good decisions because you're constantly making decisions. And you just hope you learn from those decisions and you make better ones as you move on. 
But I think the worst thing you can do is not admit that you've made a bad decision and then it puts this fear-based mentality within the process of your organization that can cripple you and your ability to adjust and adapt quickly. Dan, should Yankees fans be worried about the Yankees? I, you know, I don't think worried. I mean, I do think, you know, they demonstrated that the two best teams in the American League this year are the Astros and the Yankees. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, you know, I just, I, I'm just still confused on the Montgomery trade. I mean, I, I realize he's not an impact starter, that he was more of a contributor. Um, but I just don't get it. You know, I, I just feel like it's hard to build perfect teams. There's no perfect teams in our game. But he fit with that group very, very well. And they've kind of exposed themselves right now because they don't have any – like you talk about the Blue Jays not having a lot of depth in their rotation, and they don't. I mean, the Yankees traded away two of their depth guys at the trading deadline. They were AAA-ready starters, one of them. And the kid, I believe his name was Sears, had, had, or the left-hander that had come mm-hmm. up. The right hand, they traded to, um, you know, in that bigger deal, the, the Montas deal, that had done really, really well for them. And um, they've exposed themselves to an injury right now that would leave them trying to scratch their head on who would start game three for them in a postseason scenario. And I'm not sure, you know, why they did that. And injuries play such an incredible part. Now you're seeing that as much grief as Stanton may get for inconsistencies in his game, how how much he protected Judge in the lineup. And uh, their lineup definitely, you know, when Bader's healthy, their bottom of their lineup is going to be, for me, uh, three below average hitters. When you have um, Bader, uh, Trevino, and uh, their shortstop. And so that, you know, think about that as rolling your lineup around every three innings. You know, you, you know you, your pitcher has a chance to kind of catch their breath a little bit. Not completely. I mean, they're still major league players, but. I do think they've exposed themselves a little bit. They're not that the other guys are playing exceptionally well either, but I'm not sure you strengthen yourself so much in one area. But they they made a decision they're going to double down on their defense, and they feel like having that defensive center fielder can make up the difference for whatever lack or you know exposure they may have with their starting pitching. But uh, I think it's definitely a beatable club, especially if Garrett Cole uh, you know, continues to show the inconsistencies that he has. They need him to be dominant. This was the first deadline with the expanded playoff format at least expanded to the point it's it's been expanded to now anything surprise you like just tactically uh, uh about the yeah. deadline yeah a couple things is that um i think this mentality that if you have players that are about to free, be free agents uh you should trade them i think that not getting an international draft uh, negotiated agreement between the players association and the ownership group affected this deadline because I think we're seeing now, if you really look at historically at the trading deadline, like 90% of the prospects that are traded never really help a big league club in any way, shape, or form. And yet there's this mentality that if you have a soon-to-be free agent, you like you need to move them now to get some value back. Well, I think that's changed. Number two, I think the volume of bullpen guys on the market up the asking price. You know, like the you know the, what the Blue Jays had to pay to get the guys. Mm-hmm. You know that they got because I just feel like clubs were not getting back, you know, what they thought they would get back for the bullpen guys. So they just decided to hold them, and you know, it, it shows the cycle of starting pitching in our game. There just wasn't any starting pitching available because, <laughs> quite honestly, there's just not enough starting pitching in the game. Period. Mm-hmm. And I think that really showed in our game. And then 
The last thing is, you know, impact corner bats. I think clubs are signing their players to longer-term contracts internally. There's just not enough of those guys on. So I think if you're planning your club with the anticipation you're going to augment it at the trading deadline moving forward with the expanded playoffs, you may want to rethink that your position in future years. Last question, Dan. The, the top big topic this week is the sliding into home home plate. Uh, is Does Major League Baseball need to do something about that, or is that up to the players to figure it out, quite frankly? Yeah, it's a gray area, boy. I mean, I get the whole collision thing because a catcher is so exposed. Um, but I think you should be allowed, Prof. You're going to have to rethink your ability to slide hard into plate and to take a catcher out if you just don't have a spot to slide. And, um, you know, I think catchers have a hard time giving a lane because, I mean, think about it. You're, you're instinctively trying to catch a, a moving object thrown at, you know, 80 mile an hour plus, and that's probably going to short hop you. I mean, you're not, you don't have any idea where you are at the plate. You're just trying to catch the ball and make a tag. So I think it's just putting the umpires in a really, incredibly uncomfortable position to have to make a decision um, when there's so many, you know, gray areas that surround it. And I don't, I'm not sure how to clean it up, uh, but I, I think they've got to try to do something because it's just, it's too ambiguous at this point in time. And, you know, like that, that Toronto series against Minnesota was, I mean, that was a cool series. Now, those are two playoff caliber teams. And, you know, to have one of the games come down to the interpretation of that rule is like crazy to me. But, you know, that's it is what it is at this point in time. Yeah, that's what I kept thinking. I wonder what would have happened if that had been postseason game, deciding game of the postseason. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's a I don't tough think, rule. Yeah, it is. Dan, really good of you to join us today. We really do appreciate your time as always. Terrific insight. Yeah, you, Thank you so much. Thanks so much, man. Guys. You, guys, uh, you guys ask great questions. I appreciate you asking me on. So you guys have a wonderful day. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Thanks you too, Dan. That is Dan O'Dowd of the MLB Network, and he will be part of the MLB Network's coverage of the Field of Dreams telecast tonight, the minor league game featuring, featuring the Cedar Rapids Colonels and the Quad Cities River Bandits, <laughs> and that'll be at 7 o'clock. The great names. Well, the Colonels, is, it, it's a phenomenal name. And then, of course, the Major League game. The Major League games uh, this week between the Reds and the Cubs. And, um, yeah, it was interesting talking to Dan about, you know, that, that, that the, the uh, I would think the natural instinct on the part of some people to double down, double down in a bad decision when it comes to a player or a contract. Um, you know, look, I, I've talked about this with this ownership group. I mean, this ownership group has not been afraid to spend money. They've not been afraid to, you know, swallow bad contracts. They've not been afraid, Blue Jays ownership group, I'm talking about, to pick up money in, in deals. I mean, they just haven't. But um, I really, I really wonder what the trickle-down effect of the Kikuchi deal will be if it if it just doesn't turn out, if he is, if this is him, which is what he was in Seattle in the second half of the year as well. I, this, we were optimistic when the contract was signed, but at the same time, I think, Kevin, we all kind of agree that there, there was this, there was this possibility because this is sort of what Seattle saw. This is sort of what Seattle saw out of him. Sure. I, the question you have to ask yourself is, when's it too soon? Like, is it is it 
too early to give up on him. Like, is there because when he when he does throw some decent fastballs, you can tell his stuff plays. Like, it, it plays up too. That that's the big question you got to ask yourself. When when is it? When yeah. do we finally just say, all right, we've had enough? Like, I know it's win mode, and we want to run him out there every five days, but right now we just can't. When, when, when's enough's enough? That that's the question you got to ask yourself. Now I'm sure I'm I'm. I'm sure if they had a Max Castillo here, I can't believe I'm even saying that name. If they had him here, maybe he wouldn't make his next start. If Ross Stripling was was healthy, maybe he still wouldn't make his next start. But that's the question that you, you have to ask yourself. Because when they start skipping starts and he's not hurt, then all of a sudden it tells everybody that that's Ross, a message. That, 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 absolutely, that Ross messed message. up. And, and, you know, you're the only – that seems like you're the only GM that wanted to give him three for 36. It's a big slap in the face. Let's be honest with it about it. it. It is. And if you're the GM, do you really want to make that call? And when is it time that you just have to basically say, all right, we can't keep doing this. We have to put him in the bullpen or you skip him starts or you do whatever you have to do with him. I mean, listen, I, I this is really grotesque hindsight on my part. But I wonder what would have happened if you had enough pitching depth coming out of the gate and you looked at Yusei Kikuchi and said, after spring training, a condensed spring training, we just don't know what we have here. Clearly, it's a guy who... I'm not sure that's the right industry, answer. I, I think they knew already. He, he's a guy the industry thought, it thinks differently of than when he first arrived from Japan. And and I just wonder if maybe in hindsight you don't look at it and go start him in the bullpen. And I I, I keep saying this, man, just fastball splitter. And and let him try to figure it out out of the bullpen. And and, and who knows? I, I get twelve million dollars is a crap ton of money. Twelve million dollars a year is a lot of money to spend for a guy who isn't in your rotation. But I just I just wonder about that. That. That to me is the next logical is the next logical move with this guy, and I'm surprised it hasn't been I'm surprised it hasn't been done already. I'm with you. It's interesting too the way you talked about the Yankees, the Jordan Montgomery thing. You know, I, I, it makes you sound like a, a GM's job at the trade deadline is not to disrupt momentum. Like that is a huge, huge deal. And did the Yankees do that? Did Brian Cashman sort of? You, throw a wrench into what they were trying to do and the momentum and what they were trying to gain to, because basically they were making trades to beat the Astros. Let's well, be honest. Let's not lie about it. That's what they were yes, trying to do. But so it, would that disrupt what they were, you know, you tr- you're trying to gain some confidence, gain some momentum going in. You don't want to limp into it. You want to run into it. And did they disrupt that? I, I wondered when the deal was made, I, I understood why, because Aaron Hicks wasn't doing anything and Jacarl Stanton there's a chance he's going to be hurt, and you don't want Aaron Judge playing center field. I, 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 I get, I, I get how Harrison Bader fits into what the Yankees defensively, defensively fits into what they would want to do in the postseason. I understand that, but part of me also thought that it, it almost seemed as if it was trying to be too cute. And and maybe in the process of doing that, trying to be trying to build the perfect team, you've or the perfect lineup, a lineup with quote unquote no holes, 
you take something out of your club that was working. Like Jordan Mon- Jordan Montgomery is what he is. He's not going to pitch the deciding game of the World Series for the New York Yankees. But he could help you get to the but World Series. But he could series. help you get to the World Series. Mm-hmm. And big thing, he was comfortable being a Yankee, comfortable pitching in New York, could put up with all this stuff. That surprised me a little bit. And it, but immediately, in the, in, as soon as the deal was made, I saw it. I said, it makes complete sense. I get what the Yankees are doing. They're going for it. They're getting this premier defensive player, and that there's going to it's, it's going to filter down a little bit, and it's going to help a Who's, bunch of other guys and keep them healthy. But sometimes, man, that guy that's going to go out there every every fifth day and just kind of, you know, kind of give you what he's going to give you with no drama, and you know that. The day after he pitches, your bullpen's probably not going to be completely messed up, right? Sometimes there's something to be said for knowing what you're going to get out of a guy. And even if it isn't elite, over 162 games, that stability, that sense of, okay, this guy's pitching today. He's going to give me this. So that means I can do this with my bullpen. That counts for a lot. It does. It It counts for a lot. You can do too much. That's why I asked the question, would you rather do too much than or just enough? Well, and he said just enough, yeah. which is a, a surprising answer. Well, think back to but what, it's a it's a real answer. Think back to what uh, the, the conversation we had with Alex Anthopoulos during the postseason last year. And he talked about his trade deadline. He said one of the things you don't want to do is you don't want to give your manager something he can't use. You don't want to I'm going to make this deal, this deal, this deal, oh, this deal is good. This guy's a good player, blah, 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 blah. And then you bring this guy in and you like the deal and it makes sense sort of from a terms of the value you gave up for what you're, what you're getting, but your manager's going, yeah, how do I use this guy? And, and I think that's where, that's where the chemistry issues come because now you got a guy who's been acquired. And I think it was Doug Glanville talked about this happened to him at one point in his career career acquired and the manager. Okay. All right, I I guess I mean I'll, I'll I'll figure out how to use the guy. Mm-hmm. I I do think I do think it it gets back to knowing what you have. It it really boy the more I think about it in every sport, I think that's the most important thing is knowing what you have. Don't overestimate what you have, but don't undersell and underestimate what you have as well. Yeah, and I think that's the good general managers. Do that, and it's a little surprising because, by and large, you know, Brian Cashman, part of that whole Yankees thing we talk about, is making the right call on guys at the right time. So, having said that, Aaron Judge hits a bomb like he does last night, and uh, it's it's remarkable how things uh, no how question. things even out. Um, but it is, it's, and you were on it. For a lot of other people, when we were sitting here saying the Yankees are going to win 100, 140 games, you were saying, yeah, either that or they're peaking too soon. Well, maybe that's the case. Uh, I've got tickets to give away to see the Jays and the Orioles at the Rogers Center on August 16th. And uh, we're giving you a chance to win tickets all season long on Blair and Barker, whether you listen on the radio or on the podcast. All you have to do is text the correct answer. To five ninety five ninety. Yesterday we asked you what manager guided the Orioles to the nineteen eighty three World Series title. The answer was Joe Altabelli. I would have needed time to get it. My initial reaction was Davy Johnson, just because anytime you talk 
about Orioles trivia, a lot of times Davey Johnson's name comes up, but it was Joe Altabelli. Today's question is to win tickets on August 16th. The last time the Orioles won a playoff series was 2014. Which Orioles player led the team with 40 home runs that season? You would have probably gotten this. Mm. Again, the last time the Orioles won a playoff series was 2014. Which Orioles player led the team with 40 home runs that season? Text the answer to 59590 for your shot to win. See contest rules at sportsnet.ca slash 590. Game two of the three-game series against the Orioles goes tonight at Camden Yards. Alec Manoa against Kyle Bradish. Ben McDonald is the Baltimore Orioles analyst. Ben McDonald will join us next. It's Blair and Barker on 590-360, the Sportsnet Radio Network, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis and Stephen Brunt. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. will be the first pitch tonight. Kyle Bradish on the mound for the Orioles. Alec Manoa for the Blue Jays. It's only going to be 99 degrees. Alec Manoa and Kirky. Alejandro Kirkman. Uh, Kirky will be, be a tough one. He'll be sniffing up that ammonia, that, that ammonia towel, and ah, uh, they'll be all right. They're young. Changing, changing shirts every inning. It's the it's the old folk who get chapped when it's hot outside. You must have played in some stinking hot weather. Oh. Did you, were you? Did you have I played in Mexico, Jeff? Were you a change? Were you a change uniform guy during games? Shirt, undershirt, yeah, yeah. I have to, yeah. Anyhow, ninety-nine degrees. That is uh, covered. Not cold. Covered many games in Baltimore. That is, to me, it's a toss-up between Baltimore in August or or Florida in July when it comes to when it comes to just oppressive heat. But uh, anyhow. The Orioles, uh, it's not just the weather that's making the Blue Jays uncomfortable in Baltimore these days. Great point. That that team is... uh, Pesky. Well, they're awfully close to the wild card spot right now, as we all predicted. Ben McDonald is the Orioles analyst. He is, a, uh, of course, former Major League pitcher, former number one pick, as a matter of fact, and he joins us on Blair and Barker. Ben, thanks so much for joining uh, Kevin and myself today, I, I wanted to ask you, um, when did you start to get the idea that this team, this Orioles team might be good enough to put themselves in position where they could contend for a wild card spot? Was there, was there a series? Was there a game? Was there anything that really stood out, stands out in your mind as a moment that kind of that aha moment for this team? Well, good morning, guys. Great to be with y'all. Um, yeah, you know, um, April was not a good month for the Orioles. We know that, you know. And, of course, we knew what the expectations were coming in. And, you know, right away before spring training, you trade away Tanner Scott and Cole Salter to your more veteran bullpen arms. And you just felt like it was going to be more of the same of the rebuild of the last four years. But I think May was the month for me. I mean, the Orioles were a little bit below 500, but they were 14 and 16 in the month of May. And I saw them all of a sudden be more competitive 
than they have been in previous years. Uh, the glue to this team, as you guys know, has been the bullpen, and I don't think anybody saw this coming. And it's a it's a bullpen that really is a bunch of guys that were DFA'd and, and kind of given up on by a lot of organizations out there. And I think you got to give a lot of credit to the pitching coaches for the Orioles, Chris Holt and, of course, Darren Holmes. And, and they took a bunch of guys and really had a different approach in spring training. And that approach was this, was what we can't walk guys this year. We walked the sixth most in Major League Baseball last year, and now I think it's the fifth fewest walks in Major League Baseball this hmm. year. So it was a, a constant effort from – the beginning to say we're going to attack the white part of the plate. We're going to have our catchers set up more in the middle. We want your guys stuff to play. And I think all the pitchers started to get a lot of confidence. And, and May rolled through and we said, okay, well, this team's going to be a fun team to watch. And then June got here and it really got fun. O- over 500 for the first time in, I think, five years and a month. And in July, the same thing, even better in July. And I think it's just a young team that's it's filling its way through the big leagues right now. But it's a team now, when you talk to these players, there was a years past where they didn't think they had much of a chance to win when they got to the ballpark. It almost feels like now when they show up at the ballpark every day, they've got a chance to win. They've come from behind a lot this year to win some ball games, And, you know, that, got, that breeds confidence with a team. And so the bullpen's been the key. This pitching staff has been the worst pitching staff in baseball in three of the last four years, but it's not been the same this year. It's been a totally different team. And, you know, you wondered how they'd navigate through this thing. And then you lose your ace and John Means, and everybody said, well, it's going to be more the same. It's more of a 100-loss season again. Can't do it without John Means. And they just kept on winning. And the trade deadline got here, and you lose Trey Mancini, and you lose your all-star closer, Jorge Lopez. And then finally they said, well, everybody's like, well, it was a great run, but the bubble's going to bust now. Like, it's over with now. They can't do it without Mancini and Lopez. And yet, here they keep coming, you know. And so it's a gritty – we use this term a lot, y'all, but, but it's, it's just a – a team that is going to fight you tooth and nail. And I hate to say this, and, and I, I don't mean it in a bad way, but it, I do a lot of college baseball too, but it almost feels like a college team. Like there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of want to. And the truth is, this team's tired of getting beat on. They have been beat on, man, the last four years in Major League Baseball, and they're ready to start beating back a little bit, and they're doing that with a lot of confidence. And I think Brandon Hyde deserves a lot of credit for that. Skipper's been great. He's pushed all the right buttons. And so – who knows if it can last, man, but I tell you what, there's excitement back in Birdland again. People are starting to show up to the ballpark, and, and, and the boys are making a hell of a run right now. Ben, is there an everyday player that you, you know, sort of came out of nowhere that you're like, man, this guy's pretty good? Well, you know, Cedric Mullins was the only player in baseball last year to go 30-30, and he was the first Oriole in history to have 30 homers and 30 stolen bases. You know, he's a good ball player. Not having the year he had last year, but he's a difference maker on defense. Austin Hayes back in the lineup last night for the first time, had some oblique issues, and he was a difference maker last night. But the guy that jumps for me is Jorge Mateo, the shortstop for the Orioles right now. He's a guy that came up in some organizations and never really got an opportunity because he got kind of covered up with the Padres, who were uber-talented, and never got a real shot. But I'm going to tell you, this guy has potential for me to be an all-star caliber shortstop. He covers some ground at the shortstop position. He's got a big arm going across the diamond. And all of a sudden, you look at his numbers in July and August, he's really starting to hit the ball and hit it with a little authority, too. And so makes all the plays on defense. Uh, and our defensive run saved. You look at our outfield. Our outfield supports the top in baseball. And you guys know this. When you can pitch a little bit and you can play defense, it gives you a chance to win every day. 
and that's been really good. That's been the strength of the Orioles is the bullpen, the pitching, and, of course, the defense. And it's been just not a, enough offense. It's not a great offense, but it's a pesky offense that's going to battle you. Adley Rutschman has made a giant difference on both sides of the ball. It's a team playing with a ton of confidence right now. You mentioned Adley Rutschman. I'm looking at, at this is a guy, what, he's drawn 34 walks in his first 62 career games. Now, Ben, look, you were top, you, you were a number one pick. Now, you're Adley Rushman. You're coming up. You're a switch-hitting catcher. You're going to be the face of the franchise. And what does it say about this guy that he, in his rookie career, is able to show, or in his rookie year, is able to show that type of, 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 of confidence? And, you know, and seem to almost, like, his numbers from one side of the plate are different than his numbers from the other side of the plate. And it's almost like he's comfortable with that. It's going to get better, but it's okay. I can work with that. And I can draw some base on balls, yeah. and I don't have to feel like, being the face of the franchise means I've got to go up and try to hit a five-run homer every time. Right. And look, he's he's advanced, right? I mean, he's a young guy still in his way in the big leagues right now. But that was always what we heard about Rushman in the minor league system. And of course, I was lucky enough to see him play at Oregon State at the College World Series. I mm-hmm. felt like from a defensive standpoint, he was one of the best around at the time. I felt like when I saw him his junior year, when he was just before he became the first pick in the country, I said, you know what? This kid can play defense right now in the big leagues. The question is, how's the back going to play at the big league level? But his, I'm going to tell you guys, his, his swing decisions are really, really good, and that's what suppressed me about him. He has the ability to look for certain pitches in certain counts, and if he gets that ball in a certain count, he can put a barrel on it. But on top of that, he doesn't chase balls out of the strike zone, and you don't hmm. see that very often for a guy that steps into the big leagues. And while the we know the stuff is at an all-time high at the big league level from a pitching standpoint, he's been able to – make sure he is attacking balls within the strike zone and not chasing. And so it's an advanced approach for him. And, of course, defensively, he has made a difference. Seems like he puts down all the right fingers. You don't see the pitchers shaking off too much. He blocks balls as well as anybody I've seen. I mean, there for a while, a couple of years ago, our catchers beat a pass from home plate back to the backstop to pick up balls that got away. You don't see balls get away from home plate too much anymore. So he's made a difference on both sides of the ball. He's going to be a superstar one day. There's no doubt about that. And, and look, it's bright in Birdland right now. I mean, this time last year, Rutland was the number one prospect in baseball, and we got the number one pitching prospect. Now he's graduated to the big leagues, and all of a sudden, Baseball America came out with a new projection. And Gunnar Henderson, who's down in AAA right now, is the number one prospect in baseball. And he's an Oriole, too. And so it, the minor league system has been built up. Mike Elias, in his fourth year, has said, you know what, I'm going to build it from the ground floor up. He took over this minor league system, was 25th in baseball. It's the number one minor league system in baseball right now. So he's done it from the ground floor up. They're starting to win at the big league level now, and there's some real prospects coming. So there's a lot of excitement in Birdland right now. It's supposed to be hot in Baltimore tonight, really hot. I, th- I heard uh, 99 degrees. Well, what's some of the challenges because yeah. of the heat that Manoa and Bradish will have to overcome because of how hot it'll be? Yeah, Mike Flanagan used to say that it, uh, a day like today is going to be a good day for the skinny people. That's what we always say. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's that hot. You know, it really is. I mean, all the water around here, it's humid. And that's what I, I mean, I come from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where it's hot and humid every day. And I felt like when I got here years ago as a 21-year-old that, my gosh, I never left home. It's tough right now. It really is. And, it, you know, you got to start hydrating a day or two before you're going to pitch. And you hope you have some quick innings out there because this kind of heat and humidity will beat on you, um, you know, after a while. And I remember a Sunday day game here many years ago. True story. 
Uh, you know, we always weighed in on every Sunday morning to make sure nobody was gaining or losing too much weight. And I, of course, weighed in before the game and pitched seven innings and threw like 125 pitches. And just for fun, I went and weighed in after the game. I lost 10 pounds in one day of just water weight, you know. So it can be on you. hope you're in good shape and you can last a little bit. But, man, it's tough to go six or seven innings in this kind of heat. It really is. But as you guys said, or these guys are young. They're very competitive. The Blue Jays have a hell of a team. The Orioles are playing well. So it's going to be fun fun to watch tonight. M- Manoa, I'm looking forward to watching him. He's had a hell of a year. You guys know that better than anybody. He's fun to watch. Ben, we're going to let you scoot, man. Terrific insight. Great to uh, Great to chat with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Ben. Anytime, guys. Take care. Take care. This is Ben McDonald, Baltimore Orioles analyst, number one pick in the 1989 MLB draft from Baton Rouge. That's great. The heat's an issue. It's it's a thing. <clears throat> yeah, like it. Yeah, I'm sure some people roll their eyes and be like, ah, the heat. What? Oh, it's not a big deal. It is. It's a, it's a it's something that takes you out of the out of your routine and your game. You have to think about it. And when baseball players think a lot, they they tend to not perform at their highest level. So that'll, that'll be interesting to see how Manoa handles that. I'm sure he'll handle it the way he's supposed to. And we'll, we'll, we'll see how long they go and how they fight through it. it it's I, I'm sure it would be the tough inning, like the inning that you have to think mentally through and, and you know, maybe your slider's not working or your, or your two-seamer's not working. And because of the heat and, you know, the grip and all those things, maybe your velocity's not there early. So be something to look forward to or look look at anyway. Yeah, no, it'll be uh, like I said. Uh, you you know, you're playing baseball in Baltimore in August. It's going to be stinking hot, and it's no going to be and it's going to be humid, and uh, it'll be yeah, it'll be it'll, it'll be a bit of a. It's why they call it, you know it's why they call it the dog days. It's one of the reasons they call it the dog days of August, and uh, the dog days always feel different in Baltimore than they do a lot of other a lot of other places, but. The Jays are going to have to get used to the Orioles. As I said, they got 14 games remaining against the Baltimore Orioles. There's going to be – I'm going to make a bold prediction here. Oh. I'm going to say that by the time these 14 games are over, we're going to be looking back to those glory days of Batista and O'Day and Stroman and Gibby and, and all that all that stuff. All that stuff going on, and we're gonna the Orioles Jays rivalry is is gonna be it's gonna be back to where it was, and you know that Rugnado Dur is around. Something's gonna happen. Hmm. Um, also, ask you this before we get to Barker's back leg bits. Do you think there's a chance that when the playoffs roll around, one of the Jays or the Rays will not be in the playoffs and the Orioles would be in there. Do you think the Orioles could be that third AL East team making the playoffs? Cause I th- just asking you essentially are I'm saying, are they good? Would, are uh, they good enough to make, and I'm not saying to win the wild card, but to, to, to be in the wild card race, are well, they good enough lo- to knock off well, the Rays or the Jays? I'd love to <clears> say it. Cause I don't like the Rays. Just because you like them, I, that's a reason for me not to like See, them. See, I'm liking the so, Orioles so now, I'm though. Hope, so the I'm, Orioles are my team so now. I'm, I, I, this is just me. I don't think they have enough starting pitching. Yeah, that that's just me. I mean, it's it's a nice story, and and they're playing with house money. Uh, Odell was right. Like they're they're what well, they got to lose. Like they just go out there and play. They play hard. They catch the balls. They they're, they're trying to make a name for themselves. And but when push comes to shove, I I just don't think they have enough starting pitching to to make it to the playoffs. But 
If they do, I hope it's the race because I don't like the race. Well, it's that time of the show, Barker's Back Lake Bits, where we uh, solicit questions from listeners or viewers for Kevin Barker. And uh, I, well, I no, I don't stay out of the way. I try to try to stay out of the way. But uh, Nathan you James, don't try real hard. I know I don't. Nathan James wants to know: Is it time for this front office to just bring some guys in off the waiver wire, whether it be pitchers or left-handed bats? Well, you're begging. Uh, we've talked about it. Like, who, who who would those guys be? Jackie Bradley Jr. You know, he's got nine. He's the guy's got nineteen doubles and three homers. He'd be a better. I mean, he could run into one. I I would say the chances sure. of him running into one are better than that it's of Bradley an, it's Zimmer. Not, it's not an everyday guy. I, yeah. I think it's more important to get Bo Bichette and and Jose Barrios yeah. where, where they need to go. I think that's those two guys are going to be more help than who you could bring in here, just because you don't like Bradley Zimmer. I mean, I. Uh, who in this room really thinks of Zimmer every single day? There's a lot of conversation about him, but. Rob, 78. If the Jays don't make the playoffs, will Shapiro fire Ross? I mean, that's an impossible question. How, how would you answer that? Got a lot of years left in his contract. I don't think there's any way. I don't think there's any way. I'm just asking you. This is what people. Well, this how is, would this you is, answer this it? This is what people want to. I asked Mark. About. I don't know. How am I supposed to answer that? Justin McCarter, I don't think there's any way you can put Kikuchi in the bullpen. He doesn't control the strike zone. That is a fair point, Justin. If he's not starting, starting, you shut him down and try to work with him in the offseason. I don't know about shutting him down you know, unless one of those injuries surfaces. Uh, Again, I, but, I I ask who's pitching for him. If Ross Stripling's not healthy, who's pitching for him? Like well, I think you, that, you got to have somebody that can throw yeah, at it, least some innings. I mean, let's be clear. Ross Stripling comes back. It, it, as soon as he's healthy, he's going to be pitching. No question. And Mitch White. Yeah, we didn't really talk about his start. I mean, I, I it was just guy. I saw enough from him. I'd rather see him than you say Kikuchi start. Seems like a smart guy. Seems like he's got decent enough secondary. You can pitches. see why they call him Stripling Two Point Zero, right? Gotta, like, gotta, you can I'm, see it. He, everything's got to be going right. Like he's got to add and yeah. subtract. He's got to be unpredictable. You know, he's got to be his misses with his fastballs got about to be really, really good. I mean, I'm okay with that. Patrick Rutledge wants to ask, is asks you as a former player, all this talk about velocity. Okay, velocity's not going away. What do hitters have to do to counteract that? Is it simply a matter of choking up and cutting down your swing? I, I, you know, I, we could talk about approaches and everything, but physically, you know you're going to face 100. Mm -hmm. What as a hitter... Can you do to adapt to that? I, this is my theory. I, I think because Matt Chapman hammers breaking balls is because he's looking fastball. I, I think the only way you can hit a hundo is so, to look for a hundo. That, that's me. And then pivot most, off most that. Of, most of these young guys have bat speed. They have enough bat speed to, to at least get the barrel to velocity. Be, beat the guy to the spot. But you have to look for it. You can't be going up guessing breaking ball and think you can adjust to a high octane guy out of a bullpen. I just don't. I don't understand sometimes when you. Now we we watch the Blue Jays a lot, but I watch other teams too late in games. You you can see good hitters looking for breaking balls. So if I'm looking at a guy late in the game, he's probably pitching late in the game because he's really good, and I see that off his slider, hitters are hitting one twenty. Why, why the heck would I go up looking for a slider? Does that make any sense to you? No. So all of a sudden, nobody else can hit it. I think I'm the only guy can. I see You see Bo do that a lot. 
take a weird swing on a heater because he's sitting breaking ball. <laughs> so for me, I, I I only had I was only good enough to look for one pitch. If I thought I I could get it down soon enough, and I would have a little separation between my front foot and my hands to get that little rubber band effect that I could adjust to something spinning. It ain't the other way around. And I think sometimes you have to do that if you're hitting the middle of the order occasionally. What do you but mean? Most of the time, sometimes not all the time. But just because a guy's going to mix it up and you're going to so go up. If and you're in the middle of the, the order, you've got to sure. look for spin. Occasionally. Okay. Very, it's rare. Right. Not late in games. Off a starter, you could. Late in games, it's, you know yeah. what you're getting. It's going to be that, something hard, and tunneling a secondary pitch off of that. Look, Heater, look in a count that you think you can guess that I'm in a good hitting position on velocity and I adjust to everything else. But that, for me, sometimes is too simple. You got to simplify hitting occasionally. I don't want to say you dumb it down, but you really got to, how can I simplify this so much that I'm not when I walk to the plate overthinking it. Well, we'll see tonight. Kyle Bradish against Alec Manoa. Bradish seven ten. Bradish got a six and a half ERA. What could go wrong? He's got the Jays right where he wants them. <laughs> Mr. Barker and myself will be doing Blue Jays talk tonight. Immediately following the Jays six two win over the Orioles. And we will be back here tomorrow from don't believe that. We'll be back here tomorrow from 10 to noon Eastern on 590-360. And wherever you get your favorite podcasts, have a great afternoon.